0: Welcome back, MetsUp listeners. We are here for episode number 41 of the MetsUp podcast. Of course, I'm your co-host, DraftKick Mark, here with James Shiano, Jeter had no range, talking about the Mets series against the Los Angeles Dodgers. Now, if you're watching the video version, you might notice me and James are in completely different places than normal. I'm currently in Boston. I spent the weekend in Boston here, a little getaway trip with the girlfriend. James is out in Rhode Island, so somehow we both ended up in New England. Doesn't matter, though, because the Mets lost. The Mets got swept by the Dodgers, and they were some winnable games. There was also a game that was over before it started. So there's a lot to talk about, of course, with this series, as always. We're going to go through every single game, all the minute details and everything we want to talk about, as always. If you guys want to follow us on Twitter and Instagram, at MetsUp, YouTube channel, MetsUp Podcast. Listen to us on Google Podcasts, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever you find them, you'll be able to listen to us. And that's pretty much the spiel for this episode, episode number 41, the Seaver episode. James, how are we feeling? I mean, in life or about the Mets? In life, I'm feeling okay. It's yeah, not, how's life? Not bad.
1: Having a pretty good week, you know, taking a vacation with the family. My little sister, who's in bed right behind me, she's going away to college. Back to college. She's like, she's going away for the first time. It's not that big of a deal. She's going back to college the end of this week. So things are okay. I had a really good
0: um, Cajun fish burrito last night. That's probably the highlight of my Sunday. What was the highlight of your Sunday? Um... Had some nice Italian food in the North End. Had a nice uh, chicken parmesan. I mean, no no parm because lactose intolerant. Of course.
1: Chicken, chicken, chicken and sauce. Yeah,
0: chicken sauce and spaghetti. It was fantastic. It's great. Why not? <laughs> now, in terms of the Mets, not feeling as great. Really bad. Really awful. I, I mean, think... we knew that we weren't going to win this series, I think, like realistically. I think we knew it was going to be an uphill battle, but... The fact that like the first two games were so winnable, and then Game Three was the classic Mets on Sunday Night Baseball, get embarrassed on national TV, and have a, a hitter pitch. It was just unfortunate.
1: Two hitters pitch. Who was the second hitter? That pitch. Kevin Pollard came in for Drury. Must have turned I, it off
0: by then. Yeah, yeah I was. I was done by that point. I was like, all right, I see Brandon Drury's on the mound. It's over. Yeah,
1: Brandon Drury hit Trey Turner with a knuckleball, and then Matt Bailey hit a home run that to a place in City Field where I don't think I've ever seen anybody hit a home run since Adam Dunn back in like 2012, but basically over the Shea Bridge. He almost cleared the coat corner, just like just barely to the left of it, if you're standing at home plate. And then Chris Taylor laced a double. I'm sure Max Muncy, in the middle of that, laced something else because he's the greatest hitter since Barry Bonds that I've, I've ever seen. It was just a really overall embarrassing night. And I don't think that the results of this series was something that we didn't expect. I think our tone from Friday kind of warned it that it was at least highly possible just to watch it unfold in the manner it did felt like a series
0: of successive punches in my stomach yeah we were talking about the roller coasters of the season you know we were feeling good national series but that was a series we should have swept this is also a series we probably should have at least won one though so to get swept is a killer especially when the phillies had a rough series against the reds braves are still playing good baseball i think they took two of three from the Nats, but which is that even good is that good baseball no, but I mean, comparatively, still, they still have a nice two and a half game lead on us right now. So the I think Mets, they swept, honestly. The Braves? Yeah. I, Friday
1: was the only game they were losing and they came back to win.
0: Okay, so maybe that's what I'm thinking. But regardless, we're still two and a half back of first place. Let's get started off, though, with game one here, because that's where the whole series kind of took a weird tone. Because as you tweeted out, Luis Rojas was on the radio and talked about this game being the most important game of the season. And then we see the lineup that they throw out there, which was an absolute joke. I mean, no Dom, no Conforto, which, whatever. I mean, like, in the terms of who played over him, it's bad. But no Dom, no Conforto, no Jeff McNeil. We went with Kevin Pillar, Albert Almora, and Brandon Drury, to which you scratch your head and go, so in the most important game of the season, Albert Almora and Kevin Pillar get in the same lineup, let alone in the game. That doesn't even make any sense. And Brandon Drury starts at second.
1: Yeah, it was a really, um... Disconcerting, like hour and a half, on the way of the game because the lineup dropped at about 4:15, which is early for a Mets lineup, which means that whoever was in charge of putting this team on the field was very, very steadfast in doing it. And it was even ironic because this came on the heels of everyone lauding the Mets for not having a punt lineup in Game Two of the doubleheader on Thursday. We were all so happy, so relieved. The first time it looked like the Mets actually had their hearts set on winning consecutive games in a doubleheader. And again, I'm talking about gut punches in the intro. This felt like another gut punch. Like, How can you act like we're going to beat the Dodgers when we have three backups in the order? Not like our hitters are world beaters this season anyway. Dominic Smith, Jeff McNeil, and Michael Conforto have not played up to the standards that we expect of them. Not even to the standards, the lowest possible standards that we expected of them. And then to hear... Luis Rojas, on the radio with Joe and Evan. A little little throwback, Joe Beningo being back in WFAN for a couple days. He listened to them actually talk about sports for a second, let alone have it be Joe Beningo, but whatever. A welcome change. To say it's the most important game of the season, and then no one even asking about the lineup. I don't even think they were
0: aware of the lineup, truthfully, because I couldn't believe that that wasn't the first question asked. The fact that we basically had Almore, who's an automatic out, Pilar, who's an automatic out, Whoever's catching for us is an automatic out. And Brandon Drury, who's been hot but still... The Mets were, and, and the pitcher spot, the Mets were giving away three, four innings of this game and said we had no interest. Especially
1: also because the fact that Brandon Drury hitting in the three hole. So it's not even like the Mets stacked. They're only four good hitters in the lineup together. They let Brandon Drury get in there just to like really just break it up. Even just to get past that, when I was sitting in the stadium and I'm looking at the scoreboard and on City Field, you see the entire lineup line by line down the line. And I was staring at the Dodgers and staring at the Mets and then back to the Dodgers and back to the Mets. I was just thinking to myself, how could this team possibly on the right, score more runs than the team on the left. It seemed incredibly impossible. And like I thought that it was going to be struggle for us to hit like soft-throwing left-handed pitchers. Buddy, was I not ready for a hard-throwing left-handed pitcher?
0: Well, yeah. I mean, you would think that if Matt Moore gives us some trouble, Julio Rios is really going to throw us for a loop. And he did. I mean, he's good. You've been talking about it all year. Julio Rios is a really good pitcher. And the Mets didn't help or didn't make it any harder than it needed to be. Like, they were like, hey, Julio Rios, how about we give you an easier chance? Like, you want to face Albert Almora, who is a disgrace to Major League Baseball players in terms of hitting? Go. I'd put it on a tee and have three fielders out there and say, try and get a hit.
1: Now I remember where I was going before. The craziest thing about this entire lineup was the fact that the outfield configuration was Albert Almora in right field, Brandon Nimmo in center, and Kevin Pillar in left. If these guys are not playing center field defensively ahead of Brandon Nimmo, why in the God-forgiving fuck are they even on our roster? There's no reason for Albert Almora or Kevin Pillar to be on a major league roster if we internally do not believe that they could play center field better than Brandon Nimmo. If that's the case, you should have gone out of the trade deadline. You should have gotten Jorge Soler, Adam Duvall, Corey Dickerson, Eddie Rosario. I'm mostly just naming guys the Braves acquired just because they acquired a lot of guys who could hit because they had a gaping hole in their or they're missing when ronald acuna jr tore his acl if you trust Brandon with a play center field indefinitely you should be pulling in the beefiest cl- clumsiest corner outfielders who can just mash and that's because that's what this team needs and for some reason that went completely over the mets head the trade deadline
0: yeah i just i don't know how you can feel comfortable having albert Almora on a major league roster i really don't like i'm sure he's a good dude and probably being a little tough on him because he gets to play once every 10 days but boy oh boy does he stink he got option now, so it's, he's not even on the Major League roster anymore. But And he is still a fine fielder, of course. And I figured that if these guys were all on the field together, he would
1: be playing center because I think, I perceive that he is the best outfielder of the bunch. Brandon was playing played above-average center field this season in terms of OAA. Is that the perfect metric? No. But even from the eye test, watching basically every single Mets game inning for inning, I think he's done very well out there. It doesn't seem like there are many balls that he should have caught and that he did not. Actually, a few. The one he dropped... Last weekend against um, the Phillies, yeah, the Phillies. That was tough. But again, he banged into a wall. Things happen. He's been fine out there. And if you're making that decision internally that he's going to be flanked by Albert Amor and Kevin Pillar, those two simply should be off the roster. There's no ifs ands or buts about it. That was what really, really had me upset on Friday afternoon.
0: You know, that was not a great start to the series, and it showed as the offense was non-existent for the first four innings. And unfortunately for Tyler McGill he's basically pitching from behind right off the rip. I mean, there was just no way the Mets were scoring and going up against the all-star lineup that is the Dodgers. It's a super tough matchup.
1: Definitely. Before we even get into the game game, just being in the ballpark, the Mets had action Bronson, Bam Bam Baklava, Mr. Broncelino announcing the team just absolutely faded, eyes closed on the Jumbotron, throwing out the first pitch a little high and outside, and he still gave like a strike call. That was the one saving grace that actually we could have had to make me feel even a little bit okay about what was going on. But yeah, we stepped on the field. It was 100 degrees at 7 p.m., first pitch, 90% humidity at least. I'm dripping sweat in the stands. Every single person was. It was the hottest baseball game I've ever been to at night, truthfully. And then the Dodgers come up, and Trey Turner has a seven-pitch at-bat right off the rip, and Max Muncy just annihilates a double down the line. I'm like, oh my god. This is really this is really about
0: to happen. It's not going to be good. I mean, like, Tyler McGill can only do so much. And he really did keep the game close. He, like, ended up settling in kind of nice. He wasn't the reason why we lost this game by any means.
1: No, I think he was closer to the reason why we even stayed in it. Because the Mets didn't get a hit for four innings. So f- at, while Tyler McGill, in 100-degree heat against an all-star lineup, was working his tail off, the Mets were completely not competitive inning after inning. But while this is like the third time in a row we're describing McGill's start as like good, not great, keeping us in the game, like this was probably the best I've seen him pitch in this stretch where he's quote unquote struggled. The one major adjustment was that the Dodgers seemed like completely prepared for his changeup, a pitch that seemed to catch the rest of, rest of the league off guard, which this might be a sign that that's going to change, but... That double that Max Muncy hit in the first inning was lined 108 miles an hour, square over Pete Alonzo's head off of that changeup. And I was like, ah, shit, that's going to happen. There was only one whiff on it, the fewest he's got in an outing this year, and the Dodgers fouled it off six times. So again, this team was like super duper prepared for the pitch that McGill has been leaning on to get guys out of the major leagues.
0: And I think, like you said, like in his rough stretch here, for the Dodgers to be the team that hits him, and for you to say that you still felt like the best about how he pitched Having them hit that changeup so well, I think that's like a good sign for McGill going forward, obviously. Like, we've been pretty high on the guy. We seem to think that he's going to be a piece of this, like, rotation in the future, which is going to be really nice. But it comes down to the offense. If you can't score runs, you can't win games. And the Mets, Julio Rios is good, but he's not Walker Bueller. He's not this Cy Young caliber pitcher just yet. There's really no excuse to put out a bad lineup like that and then also just completely shit the bed when you do face the guy.
1: They didn't get a hit until the fourth inning. I'll say it again. It's really impossible to be excited about a game or a team who can't get a hit for innings on end. Jonathan VR finally broke that stretch in the fourth and the place erupted. Standing ovation just out of like the sheer relief that the Mets were not going to get no hit. Julio Urias was in such control on Friday night that he did that thing that only really great pitchers do, where he holds a pitch back and waits to show it off until like the second time through the order, like the third time through in some cases. Julio Urias has a fastball, a changeup, and a curveball in his repertoire. All three pitches are very good. and He has elite command of all of the which, so he could be mixing them as much as he wants. But he only threw six curveballs in the first two innings, and he threw 23 over his last three. He literally just waited and waited and waited and the Mets kind of got a sense of the fastball and changeup and he started breaking that curveball and guys were swinging out of their shoes trying to get ahead of it because fastball sits about 95, 96. The changeup will sit like high 80s, low 90s because he has such a live arm and that curveball is coming in low 80s. Guys were lost out there, had no clue what was happening
0: and it was evident. Yeah, and if it wasn't for our boy Tyler McGill hitting him, he probably pitches a complete game shutout.
1: <laughs> he hit the IL with a calf contusion, and the irony is that that was a major run that was scored. The Mets gave up two runs in this game after the Dodgers started hitting the ball the first few innings. That really hurt in retrospect because of how they came back. This because he walked, Tyler McGill walked the eight-hitter, who I can't recall who it was at the moment. It might have been Bellinger, it might have been Chris Taylor, I I don't know. And then Julio Urias up to the bunt, and he smashed him in the calf. And then this allowed Trey Turner to hit a sack fly. And also, the way the Mets can't hit sack flies and the way the Dodgers hit sack flies this whole series was even the more frustrating because it showed you just how far away you were from being a good, competent offensive organization. Damn, it would piss me off.
0: Yeah, the Mets were just, like, completely outclassed. Like, the Dodgers, we knew, are better than the Mets, like, in pretty much every aspect of the game, we knew that. But I feel like watching this series, you got a really good feel of the difference between where these teams are right now. Where you go, the Dodgers are a World Series contender. The Mets are trying to sneak into the playoffs right now. And it couldn't have been more evident in this series.
1: Yeah, it couldn't have been more evident on a play where um, Drew Smith gets a guy out and James McCann misses the throw back to him. Allows Chris Taylor to advance from second to third and allows another sacrifice fly to be hit right the pitch after. Not the pitch, the at-bat. Just the little things. The little things that we've known all year that the Mets do not do, they prove how important they could be when they face a team who does every single one of them.
0: Yes. Now, some positives here. The team did fight back. They did show a little heart. It made at least Mets fans, I think, feel good about the rest of the series. A little bit of a different note from where it started in this game. But I think it's so funny how the guys who didn't start the game got this rally started with Dom Conforto McNeil basically being a huge part of that like that late rally. Yeah, literally,
1: especially because Dom and McNeil got their hits off of a left-handed reliever, Justin Brule. I have to have you pronounce that guy's name, the fucking pencil pusher. <laughs> the six the first six innings were so bad that I left the seat I was originally in and I snuck into section twelve, just tippy toed past a bunch of guards who were not paying attention. And it was what a wonderful seat that was. It was <laughs> the only downside was that those are the seats that are like cushiony and leathery and it was so hot that, like, you're just dripping sweat sitting in the leather, which was a hilarious um, downside to that. But it's even more hilarious that inning started with James McCann and Kevin Pillar getting out almost immediately. And this entire rally with the actual starters happening with two outs. Like, we, every single thing has still gone wrong. And even the rally itself, there it was one hard-hit ball. Malcolm Ford, the a double to start it, and that was off Brewstar Gratherall, who somehow can't get people out this year, even though he throws 102 miles an hour, which... Yeah, he makes no sense. That moment in time, that half-hour rally, was really the bright spot of this series. That was so much fun. City Field was electric. I really felt like the Mets were going to win. Dom and McNeil both had great at-bats. When Pete Pete came around to score in that wild pitch, the place erupted. I haven't heard it like that literally all season, probably since opening day. And
0: it felt good. For a moment, I felt like maybe this team wasn't as bad as they've been over the last three weeks. Yeah, Pete Pete gave us like the David Wright almost after Wright scored against the Nationals where he came up and he was screaming and he was pumped. Like, I thought that this team was going to be able to pull it back. I thought we were going to get a little magic from the Mets here. But as we know, the guys who lead this team offensively, that's pretty much all it's come from. So once their spot in the lineup went by, that was it. It was hard to get anything going again because we just didn't have competent hitters.
1: Definitely. And I want to talk more
0: about the eighth, ninth, and top of the 10th inning first,
1: but you really felt that strongly when the bottom of the 10th inning came around. Because the way the lineup was configured once they actually brought their starters in, Conforto was like the de facto leadoff man, the seven hole, and it went all the way around until McNeil was up three. And then it went down to the four spot, who I believe was JD, and then VR5, and then it came, then you had the, um, whoever was still playing in the outfield, I believe at this point it was Pilar, possibly, I don't recall. But then you had the McCann and Nito back-to-back spots, because you had McCann in the proverbial eight spot as the lineup reconfigured, and Nito was the last man off the bench, because we used all of our bench players to start the game, and then we had to bring in our real players in the middle of the game, so there was no one left to pinch hit at the end of the game, which is a really good um, lineup configuration there. And you could just, like, track the dead spot in the order. And when the bottom of the 10th inning came around, the Mets were down by two runs. I literally, I looked at my dad who I was at the game with, and I was like, this, this literally will come down to Jonathan VR, James McCann, Tomas Nilo. One of them has to get a hit. One of them has to, and none of them did.
0: No, I mean, like, VR can only do so much for us. He's clearly, like, our best guy off the bench and has been huge this year for us. But the other two guys, man, the catching spot, McCann, ugh, he's just, like, so not very good. He's so not good. He's, He's crazy so bad. Not good. He's just regressed so hard back to where he was in Detroit. And I think, I don't remember what point in the game he got a hit. And it was either Ron or Keith again. I don't remember who was doing the game. I was kind of all over the place here in Boston. But I remember them talking about, they're like, yeah, McCann's going well when he takes that ball to right field. I'm like, dude, McCann got beat there. That's not him taking it to right field. Like, that was a fastball middle in that he took, that he inside outed. Like, that wasn't a good swing. I just don't know what value we're going to be able to get out of these catchers. And when we just kind of scrap it and say, whatever, it's $10 million a year with McCann, like we got to find somebody else. That's basically where we're at right now. And that difference, like, was not more stark
1: until we got to this series. And Will Smith just completely, like, dicked the Mets down for three games. We well, have three home runs. Three home runs. He had five RBIs before the onslaught of um, position players pitching in the uh, eighth, ninth inning of Sunday nights. But I'm not sure what he actually ended up with. He like, almost won two games single-handedly for the Dodgers, and he is one of the best offensive catchers in baseball. Yeah. I would almost anoint him that already at this point in his young career. He was the reason the Dodgers were comfortable trading a top prospect like Kiebert Ruiz, a fantastic all-around player, to acquire Max Scherzer and Trey Turner as part of the deal with Josiah Gray. But it's just, it couldn't be more clear that he comes up, like first of all, in the three-hole for one of the best lineups in baseball and can stare, plus relievers in the eye. Tywin Walker is throwing a gem to jump ahead and just... Get around on a ball like, like a like a true star. Yeah, I haven't seen James McCann do that in months.
0: James McCann has not gone around on a ball all year.
1: The, the, no, he got around on a ball a couple times in like early June when he was hot, and Tomas Neal did in April, May when he was hot. But those two guys since the beginning of July are just been completely incompetent at the plate, and I mean, it really shows that the Mets have a complete
0: dead spot in this order day in and day out. Yeah. I mean, it was a frustrating game because there really was such a chance. Such a chance. And the bullpen kept us close too. Castro has been looking great. Drew Smith doing some stuff for us. Yancy Diaz has been nice in his little scenarios. And even Edwin was locked down in a non-save situation.
1: We have to give the RIP to Drew Smith, her boy Drew Flo, because it seems like his IL stint with shoulder inflammation is a bad sign for a guy who's really struggled with arm problems in the past at best it's going to be a month on the shelf and then probably just be shut down for the year based on how this team is going but thank you Drew Smith this year for really uh for one making us look really good in the messed up podcast for calling you out as being a future high leverage reliever for this team and two just being an all-around great guy
0: yeah of course it's it stinks to see him hit the aisle like that especially cuz we need him
1: Mets bullpen is, is uh, beleaguered and Drew Smith was a really saving grace for us but the guys who were healthy pitched really well. Like you said, Castro's all the way back. Yancy Diaz has actually proven to be a piece. He's probably going to assume that Drew Smith role of being the unexpected high leverage reliever now. And Edwin had a fantastic inning, aided by um by a, a spunky young fan out there down the down the third baseline with the widest, fattest laser pointer I've seen since the 90s.
0: Yeah, that was wild. I've never seen something
1: like that in ol- ever. Being in this ballpark, we didn't really have any idea what was going on. I thought it was just Max Muncie being like a douchebag like he usually is. So <laughs> there was a lot of booze going on, a lot of fucks Max Muncie" chants. And uh, <laughs> I just really liked that Edwin didn't let it phase him. And he got 0-2, because I, I really thought that since Edwin was having a really good inning after the leadoff walk to Billy McKinney, that Muncie was trying to pull some bullshit like he does, because he's a, a snake oil salesman, and just get Diaz off his role. But the fact that he, Diaz made the pitch on 0-2 after a five-minute delay, I was like, all right, fuck you, yeah. he's still involved. And he also made a great play in that bunt, because after the leadoff walk, they sent, Dodgers sent Austin Barnes up to pinch hit to drop a bunt down, which is kind of a funny move. And Edwin like leapt off the mound and made a fantastic play moving towards first base. It was great. I got in a fight with a dude behind me. Because Section 12, those those are are the rich people. Those are not my people. I was really down there ready to start biting heads off. And he was talking about how much Edwin sucks, how we're going to lose the game. And I'm like, are you a fucking Dodgers fan? Like, are you here rooting for the other team? Like, why in the world are you saying this out loud, like, in my presence right now? (laughs) My sister sister in the hotel room behind me just sneezed. It happens. It happens, yeah. I'm going to be polite still. When the boys are on the road, you know. Yeah, boys are on the road. I was so mad at this dude. I was pissed at him. I was screaming. His girlfriend gave me, like, a, yeah, you're right.
0: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> i liked i like to picture that like you snuck into the rich guy fancy section yeah. and you're giving it to some guy not not staying low profile at all you're like who cares i'm, I'm oh. if i get kicked out i get kicked out
1: the Mets had made this massive comeback um in the seventh inning right when I snuck down there if that had not happened I would have gone further because I was just so mad like I'm gonna get as close as possible I want someone to hear me I was like right where Pete was screaming and pumping up the fans I was jacked up at this point in the game and I love Edmund Diaz I'm like probably the leader of the Edmund Diaz fan club he's good especially watching a guy like Liam Hendricks completely blow up over a two-week stretch in Chicago like these closes it's fickle business here with these high leverage relievers so I get very annoyed when a Mets fan who's at a Mets game is talking badly about the Mets. In a game where the Mets had just made a four-run comeback, maybe last night, you could say whatever you want. Our guy Bobby Blunts on Twitter said he had a lot of things to say to everyone in the ballpark. That's fair. But the Mets were tied 4-4 with the Dodgers in the ninth inning after a miraculous two-out rally. Like, let's be positive for this moment in time. Please,
0: God. Yes. And now it's time to get negative because my guy Jerry Familia uh, gave up a moonshot to Will Smith because Will Smith's really really good. Now you think that pitch was down the middle. I think that pitch was. It up was. And in.
1: I I said middle in.
0: I thought it was a better pitch than that. You're you're thought, making it seem like it was like fat.
1: It was. I mean, it was one of those things where Jerrys Familia throws a sinker in the wrong spot and it winds up in the really wrong spot.
0: Yes, I can give you that. Like it wasn't a good spot, but I still think like a little more credit to Will Smith for hitting that pitch as far as he did.
1: A little bit more. But that was still a pitch that I would I would not expect like a great result from that pitch. A stinker that winds up like inside on the belt. Which is basically where it ended up. And again, credit to Will Smith. The guy's crazy, crazy wrists. He got around that ball like nothing else. And I think a lot of people were pretty frustrated that this was not Aaron Loop pitching this inning. Especially with Familia pitching his third consecutive day and Aaron Loop pitching about three innings in the last week. As statistically our best reliever this season. That was a little bit confusing.
0: Yeah, especially because Will Smith does not hit lefties well. So I'm going to get on Rojas for that one. I agreed. I think thought it should have been loop. I was surprised it wasn't, especially when you take a deeper look into the numbers. You know, the initial reaction, you go, the righties are coming up. We got to go with Familia. But we, we know the deeper you go into these numbers, they struggle against the lefties. So that was a weird call there. It was just a weird game management-wise. I mean, from the lineup to the loop thing at the end, I, like, the lineup, you think, is not Rojas's call. We just have been under that assumption all year. He's not making the lineups. But seemingly, he's making the call So the bullpen, and that was a pretty bad one. Yeah, this was a frustrating call, especially
1: just considering how effective Aaron Loop has been. It seems like the Mets don't really love using him to start high-leverage innings, which is a kind of a weird stipulation for a reliever who's so good. And Familiar, like, he just, I don't know, Will Smith just beat him on a pitch. And the Mets had a chance. The Mets got a run in in the bottom of the inning, and we just, again, came down to McCann and Nito. Neither of them could do even anything.
0: No. And what was funny is I think I texted you, like, the difference between Will Smith and Nito, which is, like, a very simplified way to explain it. But they essentially got the same pitch. Kenley Jansen threw that same pitch, 91, and Jerry Smilio threw it, 96, with sync. Will Smith hit it yard. Tomas Nito hit a weak pop-up to the shallow left field. It's a difference between those two guys offensively.
1: And there's a big difference between those two guys offensively and it really it really showed. I just the Mets catching position is such a black hole right now. It's so frustrating that they dumped ten million dollars into this position and got nothing out of it. It makes me so mad. I was like pacing this weekend talking about JT Real Muto. My dad's like, Take it easy, take it easy. It's true, like I, this was this was the position you had to upgrade and it just it sucks that James McCann is so so mediocre for 10 million dollars it's such a frustrating
0: fact that we're gonna have to deal with for three more seasons yeah he's just like i said completely regressed back to the tiger days and it is not going to get better anytime soon because he's only going to be getting older and that typically doesn't work well for catchers so really really disappointing way to end game one but they fought back and it had you feeling good going into game two and the start of game two was pretty solid too because taiwan silenced everybody it got real quiet the side the taiwan walker haters I don't even want to say haters because we're not haters. We were just no, tired. I don't hate Tywin Walker. I just thought he was tired. We were a little more of the truthers, I think, of like, hey, his arm is just like physically not prepared to pitch this much, but he silenced everybody, and he was money to start this game. He, to use a phrase I use a lot, he gutted one out. Taiwan Walker went on the
1: mound It almost had like a playoff atmosphere after the way the Mets lost game one, the way they were reeling. Taiwan needed this, the Mets needed this, and he fucking delivered, man. He went pitch for pitch with Walker Bueller, who so one of the Cy Young favorites in the National League, one of the best pitchers in all of baseball. And it was very interesting that he made some major adjustments as to how he was pitching during this cold spell, and even adjustments from how he was pitching during his massive hot streak. He completely pulled the two-seamers out of his repertoire, which is shocking because of how effective a pitch that is. But if you've listened to this podcast or a lot of other like um, really deep, statistically-rooted baseball podcasts out there, you'll know that the four-seamer league-wide is much more effective than the two-seamer. And this adjustment worked like a damn charm. That four-seamer got all the call strikes the two-seamer used to get with 11. also had three whiffs in the game, good for a 39% CSW rate, which is elite. And the other adjustment Taiwan made was really upping the use of his split change. He'd been using just more fastballs overall over the first half of the season and a lot more sliders. He got seven whiffs on 15 sinks uh, swings with that split change. He was using it very, very effectively to come blowing inside to the Dodgers' right-handed power bats. And until, like, the seventh inning, it fooled everybody. It was a great pitch. It was a great pitch, and it was just electric to watch, like, him get with the crowd and really... I don't want to say turn back the clock because it was just like two months ago, but just like really rediscover that all-star form that made him so successful in the first half. What did he have a uh, no-hitter through? What seven? In into the sixth, I believe. Into the sixth.
0: Okay, yeah. Maybe
1: through it. Maybe through six. I think it was through six, and the seventh was when he gave up the hits and the home run.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I think that's what it was. Um, it was he was really good. He was really really good. That's what we needed from Taiwan in a big game. He stepped up for us. If he had any doubts about this guy, I think he silenced them quite a bit. Still. To expect this every single game he goes out there. Unrealistic still, I think, for the rest of the season. But it shows you that there are still some bullets left in that gun, in that tank, and that he's he's not done yet. He's not done yet by any means. No. (laughs) It's just funny. I think like um I might have been dubbed like a Taiwan hater on Twitter because
1: people were like tweeting at me, like, Oh, you think Taiwan's done? I was like, I never said Taiwan was done. You clearly don't listen to anything I say. I love Taiwan Walker. (laughs) I repeatedly called him the best free agent signing of the offseason. But again, I didn't think he would be able to pull back and do this, and he did. A lot of people in the fantasy baseball community were like, oh, bench Tywin Walker. I was like, no fucking shit, you bench Tywin Walker. He, was, he looked dead for a month and a half, and he was facing the Dodgers. Like, you can't hold that one against you. Like, like
0: tip your hat sometimes. No, and of course, the guy who like breaks everything up was Will Smith again. Cause yeah, because he's just super good. He's just going to be the thorn in our side now on that Dodgers lineup as they start to get— closer and closer to like being competitive with each other throughout the years. Now with the Mets, as we hope to be one of those teams at the top, I'm sure Will Smith's going to be a thorn in our side. Every single time we face him now,
1: don't everybody's side, dude, the guy's incredible. Like he is one of the most impressive young hitters in baseball position aside. He can't play a good defensive catcher, but the Dodgers don't really care about that in the slightest.
0: No, he did. And that like weirdly going back to game one here, just jumping around a little bit. That was a huge reason why Pete was able to score on that pass ball because Will Smith is bad defensively, but at the plate, he mashes, Conforto home run. That was cool. That was nice.
1: Yeah, I really haven't seen him turn on a ball like that in like a whole year. So it was pretty cool to see him see him
0: get around on something. Long, long time. But that was pretty much it. That's was off- pretty much it.
1: That was like literally it. That's all the offense
0: did. We had like four hits otherwise. Yeah, ridiculous. Offense did not do much. Walker Buehler though, like you said, is sick. So like, if there is a pitcher to not hit. I mean, the Dodgers, unfortunately, have, like, four of them. But Walker Buehler, like, I understand being stymied by him because he is sick.
1: Yeah, definitely. But also, like, the Mets are stymied by everybody. And, like, all the starters played this game. People it was like, oh, look, the starters played. You still can't hit. All right, well, Walker Buehler fucking pitched. I get it. It's just, like, you can't get two runs. You can't get, like, six hits. You can't string anything together. You can't work a walk. And the other frustrating part was that the Dodgers' bullpen was beleaguered. I've used that word like four times today probably because I'm a little bit beleaguered. The Dodgers had not many active relievers going into this game on Saturday night, and the Mets were just swinging at everything, playing right into Walker Bueller's hands, making a lot of
0: easy outs. He had like 58 pitches through five, and I was like, fuck! Like, well, Damn, the one time move. the Mets decide to not be patient is when the yeah. Dodgers have no bullpen.
1: And the Mets do have pretty good statistics this year when making contact with the first pitch. Like, they're just I mean, I guess that's kind of a skewed stat because when you make contact with the first pitch, probably a pretty good pitch. But I don't know. I just wish that there would have been like an absolute like mood inside their mind. Not a mood, like a plan or a strategy in their heads, like take pitches, take pitches, take pitches, take pitches. But even though they did take pitches, guys like Phil Bickford came in the game and made them look foolish uh,
0: uh, at bat after at bat. To be fair, Phil Bickford Bickford has been kind of nice this year, but like that's just the entire Dodgers team. You go there and you're just good.
1: Yeah, well, like like it's kind of ironic also that everyone was like, all right, we got to get to the Dodgers bullpen, get to the Dodgers bullpen, it's their B team bullpen. Their Dodgers B team bullpen is still sick. I just I can't deal with Phil Bickford. The guy just looks like white trash. Like he looks like he belongs in a trailer park. He looks <laughs> I saw someone put the meme on Twitter, I think it was a Dodgers fan who I follow. You know that weird picture of like the dude with the long hair, straggly hair, and like weird skinny fat guy like walking on the beach with one arm up and one arm down? That's Phil Bickford, that's what
0: it looks like. And he's just breaking off that slider and the Mets hitters looked like they'd never seen a breaking ball in their lives. No, they they struggled mightily just didn't get the offense going and it's a shame because the bullpen and the pitching did well again Castro and Lugo again you said it earlier Castro so back and Lugo looked clean again super clean and a lot of people on Twitter I think and just in
1: the world alike were frustrated that Yancy came out for that 10th inning and not Lugo for a second but I honestly don't hate that decision at all I thought that was truthfully the right move by Dave Jass because Luis Rojas got ejected because that's what he does now when the Mets need a spark <laughs>
0: Yeah, Larojas loves getting tossed, and I love that. I love like a little Bobby Cox fire in you, where it's like if nothing's going, I'm going to try to make something happen.
1: Yeah, why not? Take a shower, get a beer. But Seth Lugo, as we've said in this podcast a few times, has struggled mightily when he pitches a second inning this year. He's finished a second inning in four outings in 2021, and he's given up at least one earned run in three of them. Yeah, it's not good. Not good. And Yancy came out there and didn't give up early run all he did was give up the inherited runner he kind of bared down and it was all because it was just cody bellinger who hit a laser down the line mr 180 bellinger so like i can't really fault him for giving up one run the extra innings i fault the not scoring one run in the bottom of the inning like it's just because it's just brand james mccann and brand Drury
0: were coming up like what are you gonna do these aren't uh, real hitters how many times have we come up in situations where we like desperately need runs and it's mccann need drury pitcher spot whatever it is like every time it's never nimmo mcneil alonzo
1: never it's also ironic that last week we were talking about the fact that Soto came up in all three games with a chance to like win it or at least tie it we, we think i mean nimmo did come up in this inning and he just grabbed it out to end the game but two outs in the man on second you just wish wish that james mccain could have moved the guy over with two outs. Like he wants to go that way. Apparently. Why could not you just hit the fucking ground ball, man? Oh, it's so annoying. I don't know, man. Frustrating
0: stuff. Bad loss, bad loss, which brought us into game three and game three is going to be real quick. We're going to, we're going to glance over this one. Um, the Mets got smacked, what? 14, 16 to four, whatever the end final score was. We <sighs> talked it about being 14 to four. We talked about Drury and Pilar pitching. So you can kind of, you know, draw, draw the lines here and connect the dots of what happened in this game. Mets just got stomped. Carlos Carrasco, for the third straight start, I think has given up a first inning home run, and he just he's a slow starter. But like, I, I I'm frustrated. But I also like if there's anybody I'm not going to get frustrated at, it's Carlos Carrasco because of what he's gone through this season and recently. And I'm sure there's going to be people that are pissed at Carrasco and pissed at us for not being like this guy stinks. He's got to be better. But like, dude, he probably shouldn't even really be pitching. Like, if the Mets had DeGrom and Syndergaard back, which we thought, like, we would right now, Carrasco's probably still not pitching this year.
1: Or at least he's pitching in more of, like, a swingman role. And, like, these home runs that Carrasco has given up in the first inning, it was Jonathan India, who is now one of the best hitters in baseball, which was a great call by me. Juan Soto, who is one of the best players in baseball. And this one was, I think, Muncie and Justin Turner hit home runs, who have been the best hitters in baseball for a couple of years now. So... Not, and I guess that's the nature of 1st hitting home runs because you're facing the top of an order, so I guess it's a pretty stupid point by me. But these aren't, like, 1st hitting home runs to, I don't know, like, Hoy Park and, like, and like, start, I don't want to say Star Castro. Cancel him. But whoever else hits in the top of the Nationals order these days besides Juan Soto, these are, like, legit all-stars that are hitting home runs off Carlos Carrasco. And the guy's rusty. He's, he's it's just like, his fourth star of the year. Like, it's going to take a kind of a long time. He's not, not going to walk back and just be elite. I know Chris Sale was, and you saw that firsthand in Boston, but... Criselle's better than Carlos Carrasco. Christel's younger than Carlos Carrasco. Criselle harder than Carlos Carrasco. He also
0: faced the Orioles. So he also faced the Orioles, Without yeah. Cedric Mullins that day.
1: <laughs> there you go. Like, even that's easy. And Carl, it's not going to get easier for Carlos Carrasco because his next start is going to come again against these Dodgers in Los Angeles next weekend. But I, I just have a lot of
0: trouble being f- very
1: frustrated with the way Carlos Carrasco's
0: pitched just because of the fact that he is actually pitching. Yes. No, I think it'd be foolish to be upset at him. You want to be upset about something in the series. It shouldn't be Carrasco pitching because at the end of the day, still Mets scored four runs in a game that wasn't competitive. So if this game was close, it feels like the Mets probably scored two again. The offense yeah, maybe just didn't one. show up again. And now we're facing Max Scherzer, who is a probably top three pitcher in baseball, right? I think that's where you got to yeah. put him. At least five, yeah. depends
1: where you put Walker Bueller, I guess. Yeah,
0: but like he, who we faced the night before, like this team's just so not fair. But Scherzer's always been good against the Mets, and he didn't necessarily have his best stuff, but it just shows you that he, he didn't really need it. Yeah, he doesn't need it. He's he also, sick.
1: We haven't beat Max Scherzer in City Field since 2016.
0: I think I was five, at that game. Really? Five I full think years? I was, yeah. <laughs>
1: And he threw seven innings of two-run ball with 10 strikeouts. Wasn't
0: that against Syndergaard? And I think Syndergaard gave up one run in that game. Like, I think, I think it was like, like a that, big yeah. a big duel or whatever. It, it's tough to beat Scherzer. It really is. So I'm, I'm not giving Mets excuses, but like, damn, it would be cool for this team to step up. Like, one It'd be time.
1: sick. It was also interesting that when Carrasco very clearly didn't have it, like it seemed like he was going to come out of this game early, and the Mets were ready to concede and there were I was a man on or two men on the bomb the second inning when the game was still, like, 6-1 to one or, like, 4-2 to two or something like that. And Carrasco went up there himself to bunt. The Mets gave up an out, and in a situation where there was a potential rally, and then either, I think, Nimmo McNeil, we got out immediately afterwards. Then Carrasco still came out of the game for Jake Reed. And then someone asked Carrasco after the game, like, why did you go up there to bunt for yourself in the second inning? And he said, I don't know.
0: I mean, yeah, that was, that was a weird call. It made no sense.
1: That's ethical, especially when the player, I guess, like, You have a short bench, always, because the Mets just don't have any good bench players anyway, so maybe you don't want to burn a guy in the second inning, but the guy you didn't want to burn was probably Kevin Pillar, and he wound up pitching. So maybe you might as well just have let him hit.
0: Yeah, probably. I mean, it is what it is. Uh, One positive take from this game, Jake Reed. Some, Some funky little stuff looks solid. I think he's earned himself another appearance on this team. Jeff Hartlieb, that needs to end. I don't need to see Jeff Hartlieb pitch ever again goodbye. He's just bad. He's just not good. The Pirates didn't want him. That's all you need to know. They they said, please, Jeff Hartlieb, no thank you.
1: I was at the bar with my dad last night on vacation. He's like, where'd they even get this Hartlieb guy? I said, the Pirates cut him. He said, are you serious?
0: <laughs> I was we, like, "Yep." We should be uninterested in guys the Pirates don't want them.
1: No, very uninterested. And then, you know, the Pirates actually picked up our boy Banda, and he's been pitching. Oh, he's
0: been doing well, I think, yeah.
1: He's doing fine. He's doing exactly, probably doing better than Jeff
0: Hartley. I think my biggest issue with this game has nothing to do with what happened on the field, but what's happening later. And that is that the fact that the Mets played a Sunday night game against the Dodgers on the East Coast, and then immediately have to travel to the West Coast to go play the Giants the next day, no off day. That's insane. That's not Snow Syndergaard made an entire Instagram post about it. He's like, fuck you, MLB.
1: Yeah, I, I tweeted about it last night too because it's ridiculous. I was so mad about this last week that I was like, I'm going to hold it because it's not going to be hot yet. So I scheduled a tweet. I never do this. I scheduled a tweet for Sunday at like 6.15 just to watch it go. And like the Dodgers are doing this too, which is even stupider. But I guess no, they're not bitching because I think they're playing the Diamondbacks at home tonight. So it's like whatever. Or the Pirates. They're playing the Pirates at home tonight. The Mets landed in San Francisco at 5 o'clock this morning. And they usually, when this something like this would happen in baseball, like you'll send your pitcher ahead of time, just give him his own charter, just so he can rest up. But I think that the COVID protocols allowed didn't allow that to happen. So Rich Rich Hill, old forty two year old Rich Hill, did not sleep. He's he's pulling it all night there before pitching against the best team in baseball. I just there was a couple more housekeeping things I wanted to say before the Mets got their thirteenth sack fly of the season, uh, the sixth inning last night. So Ooh. that's great. Which is everyone remember nineteen the nineteen seventy one San Diego Padres. The Mets are going for the record for fewest sack flies in the season, so everyone keep an eye on that one. And Dominic Smick walked for the first time in August last night. That's like I saw that, and my jaw dropped.
0: That's disgusting. It's August fifteenth, yesterday.
1: Yes. <laughs> he literally went to, he played he's played almost every game this month. Probably played about thirteen consecutive games without walking. That's so bad. That's Javi Baez levels.
0: That's that's even worse. Javi Baez has walked at least once since he came to the Mets in
1: August. Yeah,
0: yeah, it's a good point. Oh man, oh, I don't even want to think about that. And now, obviously, Lindor the hole there too. I saw this on Twitter as well. Mets are twelve and eighteen without Lindor. As much as we want to say like we're missing Degrom, which that's obvious. He's the, he's the stopgap. He's the one who stops these losing streaks. But Lindor is clearly such an inter- integral part of this team that even when he's playing poorly, we still need him. So enough about that Dodger series. Let's preview the Giants one here. This is. I think probably our closest talent-wise outside of the NL East to compare ourselves to, which is weird to say because they're the best team in baseball, but I think like when you look at their roster construction, you go, the Mets could win some games there. I mean, we're not beating the Dodgers right now. We're not beating the Brewers probably if we face them again. Maybe the Giants. I, I don't even feel good saying that. I'm just trying to not be negative because while I took a little bathroom break here for this episode, I was sitting and I was like, Man, the Mets are really just gonna make like maybe make the playoffs and then like we're out. Like it's just not feeling good.
1: nothing's gonna happen past that, but I I'm just wanna warn Mets fans for how this Dodger Giant series is going to feel. Cause we're gonna get Lamont weighted and Darren roughed. And branded belted, and Evan Longoria like just completely. T-
0: Wilmer Flores is going to come back and kill us a little bit, I'm sure. Well, Maybe.
1: he's a, he's 100% going to get a big hit tonight off Rich Hill, the lefty. There's no, he's probably going to hit third. They're just the Giants are going to be so frustrating. I love the Giants team from a standpoint of like analytical team building, just because they have found some market inefficiencies. Farhan Zaidi had an interview last week where he mentioned the fact that he thinks that he got ahead of everyone else in baseball in terms of understanding a new model for the aging curve that's how he was able to sign a lot of guys between the ages of 30 and 35 for probably cheaper than market value and able, and still able to get a ton of production out of them. And you look up and down this Giants roster, and it's a lot of guys who other teams have more or less given up on between, again, Lamont Wade, Wilmer Flores, Darren Ruff, Brandon Belt, who most people in baseball would tell you he's never been good, yet he's been above average for like eight consecutive years now in the Giants. Buster Posey has returned to all-star firm. Kirk Casale has been a very good backup for them. Evalon has returned to form. Brandon Crawford, while he's had a very bad second half, is having a very good season overall. Yastremsky. Yastremsky was basically in a platoon now, even though he came into the season as the best player on the team. You're gonna be so mad watching this series, especially waiting up till nine forty five to watch these games. Good thank God it's not ten ten. That's a big half hour. But Mets fans are gonna be so fucking upset upset, especially when Kevin Gaussman, who's historically been awful, who's great, Logan Webb, who's never been good, who's incredible, and Anthony DeSclafani, who's historically been awful, and is now very good. You're gonna be so mad inning after inning, especially when Jake McGee comes in to close a game and he's throwing hundred percent ninety three miles an hour fastballs, no one can touch them. Tyler Rogers is submarining sinkers, and you're just you're gonna be like, what the hell is happening? But this is just the Giants experience. The Mets have been lucky to avoid them until August 16th. I'm going to be so mad watching these games because they seem also winnable, but the Giants are secretly so fucking good.
0: Yeah, the Giants are a little uh, Rays West. They're a little Oakland A's-like in that their lineup will not make you go, oh man, Cody Bellinger, Mookie Betts, Max Muncie, Justin Turner. Like you said, it's going to be Wilmer Flores, Steven Duggar, Darren Ruff. None of these names make you— Duggar went down. Okay, good. Fuck that guy. I hate Steven Duggar. But (laughs) that's a personal vendetta. Not important. It's going to be frustrating, and normally when we see Gabe Kapler in the other dugout, we salivate and we go, this guy's an idiot, this guy sucks, but his micromanaging is so perfect for this team because that's how they need to be handled, and it has worked for them to be the clear and best team in baseball this year. Not going to be fun series, not going to be fun.
1: His micromanaging really works out because he's supposed to micromanage. I'm sure Farhan Zaidi and all of the brilliant analysts that the Dodgers have working for them give... Gabe Kapler, these massive spreadsheets before the game of every single matchup to use. So We're going to get platooned so bad. You're going to see a completely different lineup on Monday compared to Tuesday for the Giants because they will make sure that they have the advantage in every single game that they're in. And they do that with platoons.
0: Well-run organization. I gave them a lot of crap in the past for keeping guys like Posey Longoria, Brandon Bell, keeping the old guys around, but it has paid off in dividends this year. I don't know how. I don't know why. I really don't understand it. I don't know how Brandon Crawford all of a sudden is having the best year of his career by and large. Like That guy stunk for like six years.
1: I've told you this off-air, and I tweeted about this before, but the Giants employ the most coaches in professional baseball. And they seem to employ some very good ones because they've retaught every single guy in this team how to hit. I'll say his name for the fourth time: Lamont Wade. Lamont Wade is historically just bad at baseball. His OPS is like a th- over a thousand this month. He is the leadoff hitter for the best team in baseball. He has like 10 or 12 home runs on the season. He was literally a scrappy pickup for the Giants. I'm pretty sure a minor league contract in the offseason. And the guy is playing at an all star level. Like whatever model the Giants are using to perform to this to this mag- like to this level, every team in baseball should copy it. It's, it's astounding how they're doing this, even without a crazy payroll, without real any, I don't even know, any expensive players in the entire roster. It's
0: shocking. It is shocking. And this series has the potential to be the nail in the coffin for the Mets, I think, especially because after that, we have the Dodgers and Giants again. So there's a really good chance here that the Mets are playing for their life this season that this might be the last meaningful series the Mets play all year, which is super, super depressing to say with how we came into the season. But also, we didn't expect to have Lindor out for this extended period of time. We didn't expect the ground to be shut down. No Syndergaard up to this point. Carrasco to come back late. Not making excuses, but this season ended up looking a lot different than we expected. This, this is a series. This is the most important series of the year by far if the Mets want to continue to be competitive in the National League. In the NL East, and have a shot. Which is crazy to say because they're only two and a half out of first place, but... It feels like a thousand more, especially with the games that are still coming. This series, they have to win. They have to take two of three if they want a shot. I think
1: a six-game losing streak with seven more ahead against the Dodgers and Giants would would really, really make me sad.
0: Yeah, you're gonna see. Uh, this the podcast has been a roller coaster of emotions all year, highs and lows. It will be like a funeral on a uh, on Wednesday or Thursday if they lose this. Wednesday night, it would be a, a sad episode. Well. I feel like that's probably where we want to wrap this one up here, right? It's a little short one. It's a little quick one, but the boys are on the road. And really, at the end of the day, the Mets just got beat by the Dodgers. The Dodgers are in a different class than us. Mets fans, we want to be positive. We want to stay happy and excited. But I think this series showed us more than ever that this Mets team is not ready to be a World Series contender. We are trying to sneak into the playoffs in the worst division in baseball, and we are struggling. We're in third place right now. So I'm not going to give up hope that we can't make the playoffs. But I do think that it's going to be really hard. So the series is going to be huge. James, what do you got for me?
1: The first year that Frank McCourt took over the Dodgers and the Magic Johnson group, they went 86-76 and and they came in second place in division. And they've won every single division since.
0: We had high expectations, but I think we have to remember that this is a process. It's going to take a little bit of time. We got to get our guys in there. Got to get the right people in charge. Got to let Steve Cohen maybe spend a little more money this offseason. More money. I like that. Yeah, just a little bit more, please, Steve. I know you got those pockets. Let's, spend, let's open them up next year. But end of the day, Mets, Giants, most important series of the year. Hopefully we can come out of it feeling good. If not, it's going to be a somber episode. You'll have to listen to it, though. Episode number 42 of the Mets Up podcast next week, or next week, next Wednesday, Thursday, after the San Francisco Giants series. That's where we're going to wrap up this one, though. The Tom Seaver episode, episode number 41 of the Mets Up podcast. Make sure you're following us on Twitter and Instagram, at Mets Up, on the YouTube channel, Mets Up Podcast. James Jeter had no range. Me, Mark, Giraffe, Nick Mark on Twitter. Thank you guys so much for listening, watching, whatever you do. Keep supporting us. We really do appreciate it. And we'll catch you on the next episode of the Mets Up podcast. Peace out.
1: Leave a rating and review, guys. Thanks a lot. Peace out.